It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Division, discord, contention. This has been the practice of humanity since the beginning. Sadly, it has been a practice that the church has often adopted throughout the ages as well. But the church is called to something higher than that. And if ever there was a time for the church to find a way to work together, it's right now. Hey, this is Eric. And this is the 50th installment of my series entitled Spiritual Lessons from World War II. If you have been enjoying this unique approach to teaching spiritual truths through the use of history, then you may also want to check out my current Sunday sermon series entitled The Spiritual Biography of a Nation. And as American monuments and past heroes of the Great Republic are being toppled and spray-painted, this series will help you both remember what God has done for this nation and inspire you to live robustly for the person of Jesus Christ in this time and in this hour. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to learn more. Now let's head off to the country of Morocco to a city called Casablanca in January of 1942. It is here that Winston Churchill is going to try and pull off the impossible to get all the allies to agree on a plan for the war in 1943. Did you guys see what episode this is? Uh, this is episode 50 in this series. Isn't that amazing? What a great number, 50. It just makes it feel like a, a huge uh, event. And so I, I felt a little pressure as far as what message would be 50, and I really didn't have a lot of control over that if I'm trying to stay chronological, but it really is a, a great one. Uh, the, the timing of this, and it's almost like God's hallmarking it for me. The name of this is Casablanca. Very interesting, because of course when we hear the, the name Casablanca, we immediately think of a movie. And uh, what's fascinating about this is this movie was released exactly during the time that I'm describing right now. So when Operation Torch, which we've been covering, which is the allies, the, the British and the Americans are going to work together for the first time and they're going to invade Northern Africa. And so in the last message we talked about November 8th of 1942, the uh, beginnings of Operation Torch, and they're going to attack Algiers and take it. But then they're going to spread along the uh, African coastline. And in Morocco, Casablanca is going to be one of the territories that's going to be freshly taken back. And so as a result, this is now freed territory. And uh, it's it, at this exact time, there's this movie being made called Casablanca. And so when they see that the Allies are invading North Africa and that Casablanca is being freed, they're like, whoa, we need to get this thing out. And so they actually have an early release of this and then stage the actual public release to be at the exact time that Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt are meeting in Casablanca, which is sort of interesting because we don't know that part of it. We just see the movie side of it, but the movie is actually talking about when Casablanca is controlled by Vichy France, when it's controlled by the Axis. And so when, you're, when, you, see, when you see the movie, you're actually seeing what is before Operation Torch, which is just a fascinating piece of trivia, not that it benefits us in any way. But Casablanca, I actually wanted to call this the White House, which is what that means, but then that could be misleading. I mean, the White House means something to us as Americans, so as a result, I, I didn't do that. I, I withheld and just called it Casablanca. So <clears throat> there is something very 
particular that the ministry of Ellerslie has been after. In the very beginning of Ellerslie, we called it the Ellerslie Experiment. I'm not going to say we don't call it that anymore. It's just it's not the phrase that we have chosen to use over the years. But that's, that's what it started out as. And <clears throat> to try and explain the Ellerslie Experiment, it's that we believe that God designed the body of Christ to work together and to not be divided over the nonsense, the peripheral doctrines that are just so present. And we, we've all inherited a version of Christianity which comes prepackaged with denominations. What denomination are you? And so as a result, we're used to that. That's our culture. And so we grow up in that and we always are trained in the dangers of the other denominations. And, you know, it's not that I don't understand this. Uh, conservatism specializes in denominations. If I were to describe what we as conservatives are really good at, it's knowing what makes us unique and what causes them to be wrong. And so as a result, we specialize in a strange way, we don't think of it this way, in division. And what Ellerslie started on is the premise saying, we agree because we're conservative in our bent, and if you're going to try and define conservatism, it's like we believe the Word of God is in fact the Word of God. We believe that God is right and what He says we should do. We're not trying to take a liberal approach to that and say, well, it used to mean that, but now it could mean this because we're feeling our way through our ideas of truth. No, we're going to believe that God spoke and He meant it, and we're going to build our life upon that. So whether or not that's an accurate depiction of what conservatism is to everyone in, in their mind. That's the way I would typically describe it. We're Bible believers, okay? And we actually believe that what the Word of God says, even though it may be uncomfortable and it may reprove us, is accurate. And if it disagrees with what's in my mind, I'm wrong. The Word of God is right, okay? So those that gather at Ellerslie usually come out of that mold in one form or another. Now, when people gather at Ellerslie, it's interesting because we have every conceivable Bible-believing denomination represented in our, in our ranks. We are a funny melting pot. We really are. And that's what we would call the Ellerslie experiment. The question is, when you get that many people together that come from different heritages, different root systems in their spiritual development of Christianity, can they possibly get along? Now, what we have proven here over the, the years is that the answer is actually yes. Now, part of that is, is strategic in how we approach it. When, when students come, we're like, okay, guys, here's what our focus is. Here's what our focus is not. We are not going to discuss these things. We're going to discuss this thing. And we are rallying around something very specific, and it actually has been transformative. It's been beautiful. We call it the Ellerslie experiment. But what's interesting is in World War II, you're going to have an Ellerslie experiment. You're going to have something, and that is you have all these allies that technically don't get along with each other. I mean, let's just name a few, okay? I've already talked about Stalin. <laughs> you got Soviet Russia up there, and by the way, everyone hates Soviet Russia. That is, the rest of the allies hate Soviet Russia, okay? So they don't like their ideology, they don't like communism, and so it's really difficult because they need to work with Stalin to deal with Hitler. But, oh, that's a tough one, okay? So you can understand that one. That one maybe goes without saying. But then just imagine this one, America and Great Britain. 
Now, at, at first, because they actually really like each other in World War II, you, Churchill and Roosevelt are like best buds. However, just think about that. Just think back to the Revolutionary War and you recognize that there's been deep-seated issues between these two countries, right? How about this one? Great Britain and France. Oh, you got, you got arch rivals right there, right across the English Channel, and these guys hate each other, right? So, but for World War I and now World War II, they sort of need to learn to work together. It's very, it's, it's humorous, actually, when you dig down deep into it. So now, we have a very odd problem in World War II, success. Their attack on North Africa is actually working. And now the question, now they're debating, all the allies are debating about what's next and what they're supposed to do. And the Americans and the, and the British are actually at odds with each other. They get along great, right? As long as they're not winning and they have a common foe. But once they start winning, now everyone has their own opinion about what they should do. So the Americans really feel that they should continue their North African operation for another year and just completely thoroughly take this territory. Whereas the British are saying, this is where now that Hitler has to tend to North Africa, we want to hit northern France and we want to do it in 1943. And the Americans sharply disagree with that. And so you have to work together here. So, oh, Casablanca. And that's actually where Casablanca comes in, is this is the quote-unquote Ellerslie experiment. This is like, can these guys all gather together in one place and get along? And this is rather a humorous story. <clears throat> so the Casablanca experiment, January 1943. Guys, we have just crossed the line into 1943. I hung out in 1942 for a long time. So yay, we made it into 1943. Just barely, we're in January. Uh, but we have made it into 1943. <clears throat> so listen to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? So the church at Corinth is divided. They have contentions. They have problems. Paul is going to come to the church at Corinth and rebuke them. 1 Corinthians is a correction letter. It is, just like 2 Corinthians. I mean, the, this church isn't healthy. And it's strange that when you study 1 Corinthians, you feel like you're studying the modern church. You're like, wait a minute, is he talking about us? Well, this was written 2,000 years ago? That is weird. Because it's the same pile of humanity gathering together with their issues and their different bents and their different perspectives and their different glasses on. And here they are, the body of Christ, but they are divided? Is Christ divided? Great question. So I'm going to have some variations of this. I actually have three fun variations. Whether or not you'll find them fun, I, I don't know. They might be on the politically incorrect uh, side of things, but I'm used to that now. I've been hanging out there long enough that I'm just acclimated. So this is uh, a, sort of a paraphrase of Winston Churchill's frustrations 
in the Casablanca experiment. So I'm calling this Second World War, uh, chapter 1, 10 through 13, okay? Uh, now I plead with you, allies, that we all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among us, but that we be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it is obvious to me, and by the way, if, if you're seeing this, it helps, because you see in parentheses all the spots that I sort of adapted it for World War II terminology. For it is obvious to me that there are contentions among us. Now I say this, that each of us each of you says, I'm an American, or I am British, or I am a free France, or I am really of free France. Should we be divided? This is really what's happening, too, because you have, now you have two free French guys that don't get along. It's like, I'm really of free France. Well, who are, I'm of free France. And so, it's guys, guys, guys. And so, now I have another one for you. And I didn't know who to credit this to, so I, I got the credit for this, this one. Uh, <laughs> So this is uh, from Second Wave of 2020 Craziness, uh, chapter 1, 10 through 13. <laughs> now I plead with you, American church, that we all speak the same thing and that we, there be no divisions among us, but that we be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, for it is obvious to me that there are contentions among us. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am black, or I am white, or I'm of red skin, or I'm of yellow skin. Should we be divided? Same principle. The issue is not, as, as Ray Comfort says, it's not a skin issue, it's a sin issue. You see, you could divide over anything. Doctrine is one of our fabled things that we love as the church to divide over. But we could also divide over race and ethnicity. We could divide over all sorts of things because we have a propensity as humans to divide, to have contention. This is the opposite of the way the kingdom of heaven works. So therefore, we need to pin the fact that humans have a flesh issue. They have a self-centered issue. They have a propensity towards contention. And as a result, we can't function in these things, though it be so lofty-minded in the culture at the time. And in the church, we create our own culture for it. And it's a high-mindedness where we are thinking so highly of our own vantage point that we think lowly of someone else because they don't have our high uh, vantage point. And so this next one is First Denominations chapter 1, 10 through 13. Now I plead with you, American church, that we all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among us, but that we be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it is obvious to me that there are contentions among us. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm Southern Baptist, or I am charismatic, or I'm Lutheran, or I am Methodist. Should we be divided? Now what's interesting is I can't tell you how many people read 1 Corinthians and do not think of denominations. They're like, well, th this early church really had issues. They were of Apollos, and they're of Cephas, and they're of Paul. It's like, what? Boy, were they weak. We do the exact same thing, and it is strictly prohibited in Scripture. There is an entire book that is written to confront that and rebuke it. And we, in our high-minded handling of Scripture, can handle 1 Corinthians without seeing in the mirror. That, to me, is astounding. I understand why we divide. I really do. I understand. There have been so many moments in my life where it's just like a good division would feel really good right now because I don't really want to hang out with that person. I, they really bother me, okay? 
And when you hang out in the church, this is very real. It's a bunch of humans. And not all of them have gone very far in the sanctification process. And so as a result, there's tensions that come when spirit is working against flesh in people's lives. It's a very real dynamic that if we allow the devil to play us, we will divide. If we allow the spirit to play us, we will be sanctified in our desire, in our pursuit of working together. I have one more, guys, because I know you're really enjoying these. This is second denominations, you know, because, you know, Paul wrote two, church, two letters to the Corinthians, so I have two letters to the denominations. So this is second denominations, chapter 1, 10 through 13. Now I plead with you, American church, that we all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among us, but that we be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it is obvious to me that there are contentions among us. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of the drive-in church mentality, or I'm of the Zoom variety, or I'm of the meet in person and greet with a holy kiss contingent, or I am of the we shouldn't meet at all right now denomination, should we be divided. It really does irk people in the church right now with how other people are handling COVID-19. It really does. And it, it sort of bothers me too. Okay, so I, I have found myself getting irked and having some kitchen sermons to Leslie over the issue as well. And so I get it. But at every turn, we can divide very easily. I want us to seek, purposely seek, how to work with these differences in our midst. So Winston Churchill is gonna give us a little background on Casablanca. The British chiefs of staff thought the best policy was to follow up torch vigorously accompanied by as large a preparation for crossing the channel in 1943 as possible. While the American chiefs of staff favored putting our main European efforts into crossing the channel and standing fast in North Africa. Here was a crucial issue. It could only be resolved by the president and myself, and after considerable debate, we decided to meet and settle it at Casablanca. So the players in our story, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, he's denomination number one. I could also call him British. So he's decidedly British uh, in this story, and th by the way, the British are very different than the French. And so we're gonna get some French in here too, and it's just really interesting because this could be racial, this could be political, there's so many tensions here in, in bringing together these allies in Casablanca. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, denomination number two. General Charles de Gaulle, denomination number three. He would be the free French. And then we have General Henry Girard, denomination number four, the real free French. Okay, we have, well, these guys need to have a meeting of the minds. You guys need to work together. It's obvious from our vantage point. It doesn't make any sense, guys. We have just freed North Africa, and all of the Vichy French, you guys remember me going into Vichy French? They were the ones that had sided with Hitler. Now they're actually working under the free French again. We want to lead these guys with one voice, okay? We want to clearly gather them together and not split. We don't want to split the French, okay? Let's work together. From our vantage point, all these years later, it's like, yeah, that would be wise. However, there's a lot of pride in this. There's a lot of pride. There's a lot of offense. There's a lot of hurt because of things that have happened. And as a result, this is tenuous ground. 
Casablanca, is it really possible to bring such different folk together and have it work? So listen to Winston Churchill. When we got to Casablanca, we found beautiful arrangements made. There was a large hotel in the suburb of Anfa with ample accommodation for all the British and American staffs and big conference rooms. Around this hotel were dotted a number of extremely comfortable villas which were reserved for the president, for me, for General Girard, and also for General de Gaulle, should he come. The president arrived in the afternoon of the 14th, so we're in January of 1943. We had a most warm and friendly meeting, and it gave me intense pleasure to see my great colleague here on conquered or liberated territory. So it's, you see the warmth that Churchill and uh, Roosevelt have between each other, and that's been chronicled throughout this whole series. It's really interesting to see the love and the connection that these two have. I mean, they genuinely love each other. They care deeply about each other, which is really interesting. It's, it's a rare sighting amongst world leaders especially two such prominent ones. But in the midst of World War II, there's going to be a general election in the United States of America. And Winston Churchill is genuinely concerned that in the flow of all the war, they're going to switch presidents. <laughs> and you realize, when, when you read it from a British mindset, you can actually understand how ridiculous that is to switch leaders right smack in the middle of one of the most crucial times in history especially if it's not needed. And so you can understand from the British mindset, just keep him in there if he's needed. However, our system is based on general election, which is one of the strengths of America, but it's just fascinating to see. So he was so happy that Roosevelt won. It's like, oh, whew, because the thought of having to rebuild all the communications and all the agreements with a new president right smack in the middle of the dire necessities of war was not the easiest thought for uh, Churchill. So, he, he meets him with warmth and friendliness. The question of de Gaulle had meanwhile been raised. So Charles de Gaulle is the head of the liberation of France. He is stationed in London and he is protected by the British because he represents what the British want to see uh, and that is France to be reoccupied and retaken and given to the French. I mean, the British don't want to take France. They genuinely want the French to lead France. And so de Gaulle had escaped. Everyone else of this mindset that was against Hitler has been imprisoned. And so as a result, de Gaulle is preserved and protected, but he is one arrogant man. And so he's very difficult to work with. And so Churchill has been very gracious. Churchill is the classic, you know, well-mannered, noble British guy. And De Gaulle is the classic uh, French guy, according to uh, Churchill. So remember, we're hearing this from a British perspective, <laughs> too. It's, it's really funny. The question of De Gaulle had meanwhile been raised. The path was cleared for the French forces, now rallied in North and Northwest Africa to unite with the free French movement round De Gaulle and comprising all Frenchmen throughout the world outside German control. I was now most anxious for De Gaulle to come. And the president agreed generally with this view. I asked Mr. Roosevelt also to telegraph inviting him. By the way, Roosevelt doesn't like de Gaulle. So you have all these, these unique tensions in here. Roosevelt was the one that did not want de Gaulle in on Operation Torch. He didn't want him involved. He felt like that was going to disturb things. He didn't trust you know, every aspect of this. And so now Roosevelt's like, okay, I recognize we need to bring him in. 
I recognize we need to bring him. So Churchill's like, could you reach out to him? All right, you, you invite him. I'm inviting him, you invite him. So the president agreed generally with this view. I asked Mr. Roosevelt also to telegraph inviting him. The general was very haughty and refused several times. I then got Eden, Anthony Eden is uh, one of the British uh, leadership, to put the utmost pressure upon him, even to the point of saying that if he would not come, we should insist on his being replaced by someone else at the head of the French Liberation Committee in London. At last, on January 22nd, he arrived. He was taken to his villa, which was next to Gerard's. You can almost feel the purposeful nature of that one. We're going to stick these two right next to each other. So Gerard, just as a reminder of who he is, we covered him in the last one, Henry Gerard, was imprisoned. You remember, de Gaulle escapes. Gerard, General Gerard, is a loyalist to France, and he's against Hitler. So he gets captured, and he is arrested, and he's imprisoned in Germany. But he is going to work this incredible, miraculous escape where he's going to climb out of a castle, jump onto a moving train, <laughs> make it out of Germany, in through France. I and mean, this is it's an incredible story. Somehow get on a submarine and get over to North Africa. It's like, okay, uh, that's a good story. So this guy has suffered for France. Meanwhile, de Gaulle has been hanging out in London, eating posh food and living in a posh lifestyle. This guy's been imprisoned, okay? So you could just imagine these two. They both have the same viewpoint. They want France to be restored, and bo but both of them are very proud men. So he was taken to his villa, which was next to Gerard's. He would not call upon Gerard, and it was some hours before he could be prevailed upon to meet him. You need to talk with General Gerard. You guys need to lead the Free French. I will not talk to him. It's really important that you guys work this out. <laughs> I mean, for the sake of free France, it's sort of important that you guys work together. Okay, now pause right there. If we look at it in World War II, it makes total sense that Gerard and de Gaulle need to work together. Why is it that we cannot see it in our day and age when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ? We are doing the same thing we are fighting for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed in this world, for King Jesus to get his due, for every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, to lift high our Lord and Savior, to honor his name, to heed his word. Where, where are we missing it here? We're, we need to rally together, not splinter. But we can be set right next to each other in the villas. It's like, I am not talking to him. I remember beginning to recognize this when I was young. We had just started in ministry, and we were holding, we had been invited in to speak in this one city, and it was being held in a, I think it was a vineyard church, because I don't even know if, vineyard, I think vineyard churches are still around, but it was a vineyard church, and there were a whole selection of denominations that would not come to the event because of where it was being held. It was like, well, I was just a neutral in this. I was just speaking. That's just where it was being held. But all these, and I was, I remember being shocked by that. It, it, it's make, it makes a lot of sense now. Okay, I, I understand a lot more than I did back then. But it's like, at, at the first, it, it actually took me aback that it's like, wait a minute, so you're saying your whole youth group would not come because of the environment it was in? Yeah, we don't like that denomination. 
Isn't that, it's just fascinating to see how we reason. And I get it. I, I really do. If, if something was being held in certain environments, I could see me going, you know, kids, I, I don't know that we really want to go to that. You say, Eric, why? Well, because some of that may be in the message. And I don't want my kids to be influenced by that. I mean, I get it. I really do. Like I said, it's conservatives. We specialize in reasons to divide. And it's not necessarily all wrong. It's just it has to be led of the Holy Spirit and not of the flesh. I had a very stony interview with de Gaulle, making it clear, this is Winston Churchill again, making it clear that if he continued to be an obstacle, we should not hesitate to break with him finally. He was very formal and stalked out of the villa and down the little garden with his head high in the air. <laughs> I, I just really feel like I'm in this scene. I, I really do. My middle name's Winston, so may, may, that could be why. <clears throat> I, how many times have I announced that during this, this whole series? Is that number 48? I think I've probably missed two episodes without mentioning that my middle name is Winston. But I do identify with Winston Churchill in all these different situations. So right now I'm like, come on, de Gaulle, come on. All right, Winston Churchill continues. I knew he, speaking of de Gaulle, was no friend of England. But I always recognized in him the spirit and conception which across the pages of history the word France would ever proclaim. I understood and admired, while I resented his arrogant demeanor, here he was, a refugee, in exile from his country, under sentence of death, in a position entirely dependent upon the goodwill of the British government, and also now of the United States. The Germans had conquered his country. He had no real foothold anywhere. Never mind, he defied all. <laughs> what an interesting man. But this is, you know, you'll even hear all throughout the memoirs where de Gaulle comes up, you hear this funny mixture where Churchill admires him. He really does. Uh, de Gaulle is going to show up at, at the memorial of Winston Churchill in the years to come, too. These two had an admiration for each other, but one's a Brit and one's a Frenchman. And those two cannot publicly actually get along. For instance, de Gaulle, he actually has this one comment where he says, de Gaulle had to, for the sake of his countrymen, put us down as the British. He had to criticize me publicly. I knew what he was doing and I understood. Because to gain the favor of the French and to let them know he is leading them, he could not sound like he was becoming British. He had to clearly ally with the French, which meant to stand against British leadership, and to question every single thing they do. <laughs> Just even understanding the politics in that is very fascinating, because in a strange sense, we have the same stuff in the church. You know, if someone started to think that I was becoming mushy, and I was becoming, you know, charismatic, well, I mean, that, the world might come to an end, so I need to always, whenever I talk about the Holy Spirit, then emphasize something over here to sort of balance it out. We deal with these types of things lest our audience think that we're going off the rails. And so as a result, there's these subtleties that exist which are nonsense, truly. But leadership demands some very dexterous uh, abilities when it comes to steering people that are very caught up in these things. So the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4, 
And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even, even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. So he is describing this Corinthian church as carnal, which means it's still functioning in its flesh bents as opposed to heeding the Spirit. The Spirit works very differently through a human than what you guys have here. Okay, if the Spirit of God is in you, this is what it looks like. So right now you're babes. You're not functioning and exercising what you have in Christ. This is not what it looks like. And then he's going to go in and define that. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? That's what men do. That's what British, Americans, and French do when they get together. This is not what Christians do. You see, we function after a higher model. We are elevated by the Holy Spirit to actually live in a way that is able to understand, to get inside each other's shoes, to not splinter over the wrong things. Just a side note, there are things that we need to splinter over. There are things that we cannot stand with others on. And as a result, there is something that we can call righteous division. But there is an unrighteous division that Paul is addressing to the church at Corinth. It is not appropriate for those that are in Christ to be divided. If someone is not in Christ, there's a division already. Because you have one who is in Adam and one who is in Christ. It's called light and darkness. And it is a split. It is distinguished. So where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Whoo, boy, I don't know if we actually can hear this in our modern day or if it just goes water off a duck's back. But this is an indictment to where we as the church are. I understand we all inherited this. I do. I get this that when you have been brought up in something, you don't see it. And just like I've been training in regards to how the Germans handled the Jews, when you are brought up and trained in a system that diminishes a people group and the Jews are always looked down upon the same way in early America, how the treatment of the African Americans was totally overlooked because it became normal. When something becomes normal, it doesn't mean it's right. And so as a result, when we have divisions, it is a wrong, it is a showing that we are still functioning, not in the elevated state of spirit living, but we are down in the lower regions of carnality. Strife and envy and disputes and contentions. This is not how the spirit of God works. This is how the flesh works. So the signal to the world around us that we are Christ's disciples is very different than division. John 13, 35, Jesus Christ speaking. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. Stop. Okay, what is it going to be? What is the signal? What is the outward demonstration that we are disciples of Christ? If you have love for one another. So that's easier said than done. There's, it's a very difficult thing in the church to not have distinctions, to not have 
clarifications on things. I mean, we could all mention quite a few different things that really bother us in different denominational perspectives. Like, that's actually dangerous. And you're right, it is. Yet it does not discount the fact that that person can be a genuine believer, which is why this is a tension for us. And I'm not going to try and solve the tension today and try and break down every denomination and say, here's where we divide and here's where we stand together, as much as to invite you into the Ellerslie experiment or the Casablanca experiment, whatever we want to say. That's why I wanted to call it the White House because that just sounded like the throne room of grace, you know, the, the, the great throne, white throne of judgments. You know, it just seems like this is where we've been brought in and we are united there. We are all in Christ together there and we're being built into a house. The temple, you know, I don't know, it used to be gleaming white limestone and so it would, like the transfigured Christ, it would shimmer white. And so it's like, huh, that's pretty cool. The White House, Casablanca, we're all coming together. See, I wanted to play upon that, but the White House just could be misleading, right? So not that Casablanca isn't, but Casablanca is actually a cooler title too. <clears throat> How do we reach agreement? We must agree on true north. We all have a compass, and we're like, I think it's this way, I think it's this way, I think it's this way. Well, we all have the Bible. And we all are like, that's the word of God. And we're, so, we're, okay, we agree in that. And then some, when we say, well, what do we fix our compasses to in the word of God? Because some people are going to fix it to soteriology. And they, they are going to say, it's a science of salvation. You have to figure that. And that's what's going to define if you're in or you're out. It's eschatology. And you have to determine that. And once you determine your eschatology, then you divide. Because everyone who's in the wrong eschatolo- eschatological camp is an idiot. Okay, so it's morality. That's what it is. No, it's what day you celebrate the Sabbath. That's the, that's the issue. And they fix their compass to the wrong north. And as a result, it gets them cattywampus and they start to follow their compass in the wrong direction. It does not mean that those issues aren't in the Bible and God wants to address them. It's just that if you don't have true north, you could believe the Word of God is, in fact, the Word of God, but if you place your confidence and your focus in the wrong spot in that text, it'll actually lead you astray, which is a funny statement. But that's how the devil works. He wants to beguile us. So it's like, oh, we've got a believer on our hands. Well, what's his tactic? To get that believer off. To get them to focus on something that isn't the center of the center of the center. But what if we all got the true north? So conformity unto one message, this is in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 11. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I mentioned three things. I even put numbers in front of them here so we don't miss them. That you all speak the same thing. Yeah, right. Could you imagine the church all speaking the same thing? Yeah. Number two, and that there be no divisions among you. Ha! How, Paul, are you living in reality? Yeah, he's talking to the church at Corinth. <laughs> who was a mess. And this is what he's saying. This is, he's beseeching the church of Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus. That means the authority of Christ being spoken right here. That you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So in light of this, he is going to drop the bomb. He is going to give the north he is going to say, all right, everyone get out their compasses. Do you guys remember what I came to you and determined to know nothing but? 
Do you remember? Do you remember what the center of the center of the center was? So true north. 1 Corinthians 2.2 For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. You want to get the center of what the Bible is about. What's the Old Testament about? And some of you could say it's about a great history, a history of a nation and the people of how God providentially led them. Well, it is, but that's actually not the main point of it. Why did God give us the word of God? It's about law so we can see the righteousness of God. Well, it does, it does have law in there, but what is the law for? The law is a schoolmaster to lead us somewhere. Why was the Bible given? To reveal to us a man and what that man would do for us. If you lose sight of true north in the Bible, you lose Christianity. You lose the power of it. Jesus and what Jesus did for us. Boom, right there. We fix our compasses to that and suddenly Casablanca begins to work. You, get, you gather these guys together and you know what allies them? We know what we're about. We need to win this war. We need to defeat Hitler. <laughs> comes down to that. We need to know what we're about. We're about Jesus and what Jesus did. We need our war aim. We need to know what this is about. Because if it's just about keeping Casablanca safe, we're, we're going to make weird decisions. But is keeping Casablanca safe important? Sure. But that's not the great war aim. That's one little piece of what's happening inside of the war. The same is true with these peripheral doctrines. They matter. They have value. But you need to understand the whole so that you fight as a group towards a common end. So I'm going to go through a little exercise here. And it's basically going to just be a little worship of Jesus. A little. It's, this, is, this is fun. So it's a reflection upon who he is. Why he is the north. Why what he did is paramount in our lives. Jesus, he who created the heavens and the earth, he who is God in the flesh, he who perfectly demonstrates God's glory, he who enunciates God's holiness, he who reveals God's perfect righteousness, he who brings us God's salvation, he who manifests the love of God, he who is the way to the Father. Jesus, he who is without spot or blemish, he who perfectly fulfilled, fulfilled the Messiah test. He who proved to be the scent of the Father with perfect canonicity. He who fulfilled the scriptures and validated their authenticity and perfect integrity. He who took the wrath of the Father and was accursed for man's rescue. He who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He who was crucified in obedience to the Father. He who redeemed man with his blood. Jesus he who atoned for man's sin was a satisfying offering in man's place. He who was accursed condemned in man's stead. He who destroyed the power of sin and death. He who overcame the devil. He who triumphed over the grave. He who died but rose again on the third day. He who rent the barrier between God and man. He who brought man forgiveness of sins. He who brought man cleansing from his sins. He who brought man victory over sin. Jesus he who is man's robe of righteousness. He who condemns sin in the flesh. He who created an avenue for man's freedom from the law of sin and death. 
He who provided himself as man's vehicle of victory and man's passage unto the Father. He who ascended to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. He who has given man a new life in himself. He who has made, a man, made man a new creature in himself. He who has supplied man a new citizenship in himself. He who has seated man with him in the heavenly places in himself. Jesus, he who is over all things. He to whom all things in all the heavens and the earth are subjected to. He who is King of kings and Lord of lords. He who went to the Father and that, that the Spirit of God might come to believing man. Jesus, he who purchased man the opportunity to have his very life, his very spirit, his very power within. He who made the physical body of every believing man his actual temple. He who in reality desires to live and move in the body of a believing man. He who will enable and empower the believing man to obey. He who will cause the believing man to actually triumph over sin. He who will cause the believing man to live as he lived, love as he loved, and do even greater things than he did while here on earth. Jesus, he who supplied us the great gospel that we might know his indwelling power. He who supplied us the great gospel that we might be more than conquerors. He who supplied us the great gospel that we might partake of his divine nature. He who gave us not a powerless form of religious godliness, but himself godliness with a capital G itself and spirit power. He who causes believing man to be immovable and unstoppable. He who is the head of this, of this immovable and unstoppable juggernaut known as the church. Jesus, he who has brought believing man into a place of heavenly adoption. He who has called believing man into intimate communion and fellowship. He who has placed his name upon believing man and set his seal of love upon him. He who desires to be known intimately and well by those he has redeemed. And he who has the deepest affections for those who have come to him in faith. Jesus, he who demands absolute and instant obedience. He who commands that man yield up his life to him. He who beckons man to pick up his cross and follow him. He who says, count the cost before you come to him. He who says that he will spew lukewarmness out of his mouth. He who commands man to repent of his sins, his old life, his old deeds, and his every idol. He who commands that man walk in faith and swerving confidence in his ability to perform that which he promises. Jesus, he who commands that man confess his sins one unto another. He who commands that man must forgive others as he has forgiven them. He who commands that man must renounce his every tie with darkness. He who commands that man must deny himself. He who commands that man, man let not sin reign any longer in his mortal body. He who that, when he begins a work, is faithful to bring it to completion. He who doesn't just command, but enables man to obey his every command. Jesus, he who is the great rescuer, the great intercessor, he who calls his followers to live as he lived, and thusly rescue the weak and needy and intercede for the vulnerable and oppressed just as he did. He who calls his followers to take what he has freely given them and share it with those that do not have. He who calls his followers to reveal his nature, his behavior, and his attitude in every circumstance, every encounter. He who first loved that his beloved followers might demonstrate his great love to this world about. So listen to Paul in Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Stop right there. This world is baiting us to think on things that don't fall into that list. This is a direct command from Scripture of what our mind is supposed to 
set itself upon. And as a result, when we begin to behave in that elevated way by the Holy Spirit, we actually then in our relationship with others shift in our disposition. Have you ever had it where you're going through a season and you're extra irritable? I, I can't imagine that any of you have ever gone through that. But where you're just on edge and little things that people do really bother you. And it just sets you off and you find yourself with a tone in your voice that is not right and you feel bad about it, right? But you also feel sort of swept away by the wave or the current of whatever this frustration or this thing is in your life. You see, that's normal human. God desires to intervene in our life and to take all of that and say, I want you to fix yourself up here. I want you to take that mind and instead of fixing it on this, I want you to fix it on this. Yeah, Eric, you got your thoughts on this. I want you to fix it over here. You see, if you were to go to Fox News right now, okay, I don't know what's on Fox News right now, but if we were to, you know, foxnews.com and click on it, I could guarantee you what's on that front page would make us mad. I mean, without even looking at it, okay? I guarantee it, it would stir us, it would, make, it would either cause fear, little anxiety, little fretting, foreboding. It may lead to anger, hostility, resentment, bitterness. Can you believe what they're doing to our country? It really bothers me too, okay? So I'm, I'm right in there with you. And yet, I don't see that in the list. Think on these things. You see, Paul is coming to the church at Corinth and he is giving a map, a pattern, for how they are to live. And he says, this is what I came to you teaching you. Jesus and him crucified. The church of Philippi, he's giving them a thought process. He's saying, look guys, you are built to change the world. He's in prison as he's writing the, the letter to the church at Philippi. And he's saying, rejoice. And again, I'm gonna tell you, rejoice. You need to have an attitude that's from up here and not one that's down in the dirt. You wanna know how to do that? Don't think on these things, things of the earth. Think on these things. Get God's perspective on it, and it will radically alter your life. And get this, your behavior, and get this, your relationships with others. You know that if you're not stewing over some of the things the liberal agenda is up to, it's easier to love the liberals? <laughs> you see, when you're focused on the fact that they're destroying our country, it's really hard to love them. But when you're focused on the fact that God loves them, God cares about their soul and he shed his blood for them, you know, it's a very different angle on the same thing. Same person, but now you can actually be a conduit of God's behavior, that elevated behavior, instead of the carnal behavior. We are all very good at carnal behavior. We don't need to be trained in carnal behavior. We pop out of our mom's womb functioning that way. But we have to deliberately make choices to agree with the word of God, to be conformed into God's behavior. And he's saying, no more of this division, guys. This isn't going to work. We will not stand for this in the church of Jesus Christ anymore. When's the next generation? Our generation of young people are so passionate about all these nonsensical political cultural things. What if they were to get passionate about denominations being eradicated in this generation from the church of Jesus Christ? Could you imagine if we caught that as a vision? It's like, now that's a worthy course. Let's start following Paul's model. What if we as a generation were to think on these things instead of on those things? So listen to how this finishes. 
the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is going to say, what I taught you, what I teach you, I taught you true north, guys. I taught you that the end of all things is Jesus Christ, that he's preeminent in all things. I've taught you this, haven't I? Okay, now have you watched my life? Have you seen how I've lived? He's a good Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he's going to go to the Gentiles? Cuckoo. You see, he is going to model a graciousness towards the hostile, towards those living in darkness that we are unfamiliar with. He is going to enter into assemblies of Christians and rebuke those that are actually creating division. He's saying, guys, we need to work together. Don't put a stumbling block in their way. Let's work together to actually live robustly for Jesus Christ. So let me read it again. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. We want to pull off Casablanca. We want to rally together as the allies and win this war. We have to begin to function at a higher level. We cannot live with what we have just inherited in our church traditions. We must rise up and allow the Spirit of God to mature us above that. Because God has taught us very clearly in Scripture how we are to function in the church. We have not functioned that way in our lifetime. Which means we have no pattern for this. We have no model for this. Well, the same thing in Casablanca. How are you supposed to do this? How are you supposed to knit these parties together? Well, same challenges, except for we have the Holy Spirit. They're fighting physical battles. We're fighting spiritual ones. We have the enabling grace of God to be able to pull this off. Let's take advantage of it. Father, this is unto you. We make our requests known. Teach us and train us in this generation. Rebuke us where necessary. Indict us, Lord Jesus. Hold us accountable to our behavior. And may you correct us, reprove us according to your word. Lord, begin with us. We don't want to turn outward and cluck our tongue at a dying culture. We are the ones that are supposed to shine light and reveal the manifold wisdom of God unto the heavenly realms. Lord, start with us. Change us so that this world can be changed. We love you and trust you. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.